Today we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. John 2, 1 to 11. The first miracle at the wedding of Cana. Verse 1. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited, and his disciples, to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out some now, and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this first miracle that so typifies the work of Christ, the work of Christ on our behalf. We pray that you'll teach us from this passage the many truths that are found here, and we ask that our hope and our faith will grow, that we will abound in peace and hope and faith in the things that we study here. Grant us also, Father, insight and wisdom in how to live in regards to the truths that we find here. Teach us from your word and teach us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. Now, in John chapter 2, we have come to the first miracle or the first sign miracle of Christ. In the book of John, John will be explaining several signs or miraculous signs that Jesus will perform and their significance. And often there is a type in them or spiritual significance in them. There is both the actual event, but also the spiritual significance of the event. And it is going to be um, our study with this passage, both is what we will see. We will see some actual and practical matters as to what we ought to do or what we ought to know in terms of our interaction with each other, but also the spiritual significance of these events. Here it says in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, that it was on the third day that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, John has been telling us what has happened day after day since chapter 1. And this third day, it's uncertain as to what he meant by this third day. Perhaps it was the third day after they purposed to go forth into Galilee, which starts in chapter 1, verse 43. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and that's when Philip and Nathaniel encounter Christ, or Nathaniel encounters Christ in that way. So... It's probably the third day in that sense. 
that as soon after going back into Galilee, he begins to show forth his public ministry. Because when he was in Judea, what happened? He was baptized. He was baptized by John. He was baptized by John. So now that he goes to Galilee, he is immediately, soon after arriving, beginning his public ministry. That's when his public ministry started. John's ministry lasted about three to four years prior to Jesus, and then Jesus' ministry lasted about three and a half years. There was a transition. So Jesus is quickly going on and performing this first miracle. Then it says in verse 1 that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, a wedding there. A wedding or a marriage. This word could mean marriage or wedding. And of course, when there's a marriage, there's a wedding. When there's a wedding, there's a marriage. Often that this is the case. And that's why this word can be translated each uh, or either way. And your Bible may be different, either saying marriage or wedding. So this marriage or wedding takes place. And so when a wedding or a marriage takes place, what is usually happening? The parties involved, both sides, and those who are guests of both sides are all there for a happy and joyous occasion. That's what a a wedding and a marriage is about. Because what happens here on earth in an actual wedding is chosen by God to be a picture of an actual and real wedding that we will have as the church to Christ, the bride. We are the bride of Christ. He is considered our groom. So we will have a wedding in the days to come, in the years to come, on that day, on the day of judgment, this marriage supper of the Lamb will occur. Revelation chapter 19 and Isaiah chapter 25, they both explain the fact that there is a marriage of the Lamb and a lavish banquet. So Jesus, when he chooses this wedding for his first miracle, is choosing to show that he is coming on a joyous mission, a mission that has for its purpose not only to support an actual marriage on the earth, but also to typify for us what will happen in the days to come, in the age to come, on the day that he returns. Now, this one happens to take place in Cana of Galilee. In Cana of Galilee. We see this also mentioned in verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Furthermore, in chapter 21, verse 2, it is said that Nathanael, one of the twelve, mentioned in John chapter 1, that Nathanael was of Cana in Galilee. This Cana of Galilee is most likely in the tribe of Asher from Joshua chapter 19, verse 28. There is a Cana mentioned in Joshua 19.28, and Joshua places it in the tribe of Asher, in the north, in the area called Galilee. That's where it took place. It's important to understand this historical nature and geographical nature of this wedding because some interpreters, heretical interpreters, take this to be a fictional occurrence or a fictional story. It's not a real incident in the life of Christ. The Bible, and the book of John especially, is not to be trusted for historical events. But we can't hold to that 
view because the Bible is clearly intending for this to be situated in reality, in history, in the life of Christ, the first miracle of Christ. For it says, like we said in chapter 2, verse 1, it's in Cana of Galilee. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So he's manifesting his glory by doing an actual miracle in an actual place. And because of it, his disciples believed in him. It would be it would be superfluous for John to say that his disciples believed in him for telling a fairy tale. That would not be correct. It would be something that they would believe in him if he did a stunning miracle. If he did that, then it would be real and true, and that's why they would believe in him. So obviously, this and the many other incidents of Scripture in the life of Christ and other miracles of the Bible actually did occur. And we therefore must have a, a belief in God that is supernatural. After all, if God created the universe, can he not turn water into wine? Of course he can, if he created the universe. So we should assume that when we come to the pages of the Bible, that our God is a miraculous God. Now, 2 verse 1 also says, the mother of Jesus was there. The mother of Jesus. From this phrase, the mother of Jesus, it is evident, implicitly so, that the father of Jesus is not mentioned, and it is likely that the father of Jesus was deceased by this point. By the time Jesus was 30 years old, for whatever reason, he had passed away. The scripture nowhere records his death, nowhere mentions his death, nothing like that, nowhere says anything of it, but it's likely that he had already passed away. And certainly by the time Jesus was crucified, three and a half years after he started his ministry, it's likely that his father died because in chapter 19, in chapter 19, Jesus on the cross when his mother Mary is there and John the Apostle is there, he has John the Apostle take care of his mother. And why? Because she, was, she would have been a widow. And since Jesus was dying, and up till his death, he was taking care of Mary. But upon his death, he needs someone else to take care of Mary, his mother. So John is the one chosen. Look at chapter 19, verse 26. 1926. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. See there? Jesus was caring for his widowed mother until his death. And then upon his death, he had John the Apostle take care of his widowed mother. That's probably why John says in John 2, verse 1, the mother of Jesus was there, not the parents of Jesus, just the mother of Jesus. And it's also likely that this wedding and marriage is taking place because it is someone known to them, either a relative or a close friend. A relative or a close friend, and that's why it's saying the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, 
And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. The main guest there is the mother of Jesus, but the mo- because the mother of Jesus was there, the other relatives in the family of the mother come. Jesus is a part of that. And his disciples. His disciples are also included. So the primary ones are the mother and Jesus and then his disciples, the primary guests to this wedding. When it says his disciples, some take it to mean the disciples only the ones mentioned in the previous chapter. Only the ones mentioned in the previous chapter. However, I take it to probably include more than just them. And the reason is, in chapter 2, verse 11, we have this phrase, his disciples, which is a reference back to chapter 2, verse 2. But then in chapter 2, verse 22, to 22, this phrase reappears, Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So it may be that it includes more disciples because after his resurrection, the the disciples who heard about his resurrection believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So it may include even more Disciples, Whatever the case, they are all here now at this wedding. Now, before we proceed, I, I want to rem- remind you or, or mention something. After we explain the passage, I will go back and explain some more implications of the passage. All right? So we will come back to the subject of marriage and the wedding. So now, verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. The wine gave out. Now, when one is celebrating, the, when food is lacking or drink is lacking, and especially when the wine is lacking, then that's trouble because the host does not want that predicament to occur with the guests, especially when everyone is expecting to celebrate and to be joyful at a wedding. Correct? So it's natural and normal for there to be a concern. And the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. Now, she says this perhaps because she was a significant guest at this wedding. Perhaps that's the reason. And then she, being mindful of that fact, being concerned for those in the wedding, in those families represented there, mentions to Christ, they have no wine. This this indicates that Mary understood who Christ was. They understood who he was, and they also understood his miraculous power. She and um, Joseph, the husband of Mary, they both understood who Christ was and his power. After all, if we go to Luke chapter 2, you remember in Luke 2, 25 to 38, Luke 2, 25 to 38, We have two individuals, Simeon and Anna. Simeon, a righteous man, he saw Christ and held Christ and blessed God because of Christ. And then Anna, Anna called a prophetess in chapter 2, 36 to 38. She also spoke words of praise to God because of Christ and the coming of Christ. This was after he was born. 
when he was born. And so she heard these things and knew these things. And further, in chapter 2, remember when he was initially born, the shepherds and the angels spoke of the ministry of Christ and the birth of Christ. And what does it say about Mary? It says in chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. So I think this is what Mary understood. And certainly, Mary would have known of the preaching ministry of John the Baptist, preaching about the imminent coming and public ministry of Christ. So based on that, she mentions to Jesus, they have no wine. She knows he has not performed any miracle to this point. According to chapter 2, verse 11, this was his first miracle, both public and private miracle. This was his first miracle. Therefore, she knew he had the capability and she knew from the previous incidents that everyone knew him to be the Christ from the preaching of John and from the Old Testament that Christ would come and he would perform miracles to validate and vindicate his role as Christ and as Savior to manifest his glory to the people. And he would do so by miracles. So it's on the basis of these facts that she says they have no wine to him. Then verse four, verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Firstly, in his response, he says, woman. This word, woman, in English, it sounds very biting or harsh. In English, it does. However, it is not that in the Greek language. It's not that in the Greek language, and it's not that in the Bible, and it's not that in Greek literature. Outside the Bible, in Greek literature of the time, the word woman in that form was not necessarily a negative word. It was not necessarily that. It was a, an honorable term. The woman of the house, even in English, it does not necessarily mean that that's a word of denigration to the, the woman of the house, right? It's, not, it's an, an honorable term according to the context. So this is the case outside the Bible in Greek literature, but also in the Bible. Let's return to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 26. 1926. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. On the cross, there would be no way that Jesus would be maligning or denigrating his mother. There's no way he's doing that. And in fact, He's taking care of his mother and says, woman, behold your son. You see, there's no way he's mistreating his mother in the terms he's using. Also, look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. 
John chapter 20, verse 11. 2011. This is Mary, Mary, Mary Magdalene at the tomb after Jesus rose from the dead and she notices that he's not there in the tomb. Chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The angels are saying this. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. So in this case, the angels are not berating her by calling her woman, and even Jesus is not berating Mary Magdalene by calling her woman. No way, it's not possible in those contexts. Therefore, it is impossible for Jesus to be berating his mother, condemning his mother, or dishonoring his mother. That's the real issue. If anybody thinks by this that Jesus dishonored his mother by calling her woman, then Jesus would have sinned. But we know from John 8, 29, he said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? And many other passages that teach that Jesus was perfect, sinless. He was not using a derogatory term to, to, to call his mother. He did not do so. Furthermore, another dilemma that people face in chapter 2, verse 4, has to do with what do I have to do with you? What do I have to do with you? Now, it is granted, it is granted throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that this is a term that causes the speaker to express some separation or some disagreement with the other party. It does express some disagreement or some separation with the other party addressed in this dialogue. There is no doubt about that, that it does convey that actually happening. Uh, for example, for example, in 2 Kings 3.13, this would be a negative example of this. 2 Kings 3.13. 2 Kings 3.13. In this case, we have certain kings coming to Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 3. And these kings are about to conduct war and they're trying to consult the prophet of the Lord before they do that. But one of those kings was an evil king. And 2 Kings 3.13. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. 
And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. This king of Israel is a wicked king. He's mentioned in verse 1, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. So he was an evil king, and the evil king is consulting the true prophet of God, Elisha. But Elisha says, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father. That is, go to the prophets of your father and mother, those false prophets, those idolatrous prophets. Go ask them. Don't come to me and ask me. Go and ask them. So Elisha clearly is expressing separation and disagreement with the other party. He is certainly doing so. Correct? This is just one example of a negative use of this. However, turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 16. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 16. In this case, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, comes to King David with a request. So we, we can begin at 1 Kings 1, 15. So Bathsheba went in to the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? Literally, and your Bible may have a marginal note, it says, What to you? What to you? What is there to you? Or what do you wish? So in this case, King David is not being disrespectful to Bathsheba, his wife. He's merely asking her, I don't know why you would come. What's going on? So in some sense, he is expressing some doubt or, or separation between himself and his wife. But he's not saying it negatively. He is curious or he wants to know what's going on. What to you? What to you? Another example, 2 Kings chapter 6. Another, another positive example. Positive example. Asking the question. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 28. Here there is the king, and there is a woman who comes with a petition to the king as the supreme judge of the land. And 2 Kings 6, 28, the king said to her, what is the matter with you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Now, she does have a legitimate petition to the king, but the king does not really know. He's asking her to speak up and say, what's going on with you? And he says, what is the matter with you? And perhaps also you might have a footnote that says, what to you? What to you is simply the phrase in Hebrew in these passages, what to you. But our translations say, what is the matter with you? So based on these examples, the positive examples are the not necessarily negative examples of criticizing the other party for coming with the question or coming with a petition I think that that's how we should take chapter 2, verse 4 in John. What do I have to do with you means that he's telling his mother that 
Do you understand the significance of what you're saying? Do you really understand the significance of what you are saying? I do think he is implying something to her that she has to contemplate and understand. He's not rejecting the petition. That's obvious because in the next verse, without any further explanation, chapter 2, verse 5 of John, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She knows he's not rebuffing her to the point of rejecting the request. He's not being dishonorable to her in that way, but he is expressing some level of separation, some level of separation. And I think it is because he is making her understand that when you ask me to do this, I'm not only doing it because of this, but for some greater reason. For some greater reason. And let's see an example of this, even between Jesus and Mary, or Jesus and his parents. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Remember that when Jesus was a boy, when he was 12 years old, when he was 12 years old, his parents went to Jerusalem to celebrate at the feast. And upon their conclusion of the feast, they returned. But going in a caravan with many relatives and likely friends and relatives, when you are with trusted people, you don't always take care to make sure that your son or daughter, especially if he's 12 years old, is always right there by your side because he could be with the friends, with the cousins, and like that. He could be with someone else. So when they left, they just assumed that Jesus would have been with one of them. But they went far enough and then noticed, far enough away from Jerusalem, and noticed that he was not in this caravan of relatives. So they returned to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, and they find him talking to the teachers in the temple and asking them questions, right? Well, notice what it says. 2.48, Luke 2.48 And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. See there. She confronts Jesus as to why he did that, because they had been anxious, anxiously looking for him. And notice here too, the father or Joseph, the husband of of Mary, was still alive when Jesus was 12 years old. So he must have passed away sometime between Jesus' age 12 and 30. That's when he passed away. But that's a side point. But notice in verse 49, Jesus says to his mother, why is it that you are looking for me? Does that not sound like John chapter 2, verse 4? That Jesus takes it as an opportunity to teach his mother something? that she did not comprehend about who he was and what his ministry was. He takes this opportunity. Did you not know that I had to be about my father's house? 
they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They didn't understand. So initially they didn't understand what he meant by that because he said it in some kind of, of parabolic or ambiguous way. But then later they did because it says in verse 51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She treasured them in her heart. But in the meantime, what happened? Verse 51, he went down with them. He wasn't saying by that statement, no, I'm going to stay here and you all just go back to Nazareth and I'm not going to obey you anymore. That's not what he meant by that. Because it says he went down with them, came to Nazareth, went down meaning Jerusalem's on a, on a hill or a mountain. So he went down and then he went to Nazareth in the northern country of Galilee. He continued in subjection. That means he had always been obeying them and he continued to obey them. He continued in subjection to them. He had always been obedient. And in the same way, that's what Jesus meant in John chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, what do I have to do with you? And I said, he's looking futuristically. Why? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. By this statement, he doesn't mean, I'm not going to make water into wine. He doesn't mean that. What he means by that has to do with his death and the significance of his death for the redemption of, our, of the people of God for their future hope and salvation. That's what he meant. My hour has not yet come. For example, look with me in the book of John. This is a refrain in this book. My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 30. John 7, verse 30. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. They want to arrest him, and they want him to put him to death, but that is not made possible by God because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 20. John 8, verse 20. Another incident. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. There too, they were unable to arrest him because his hour had not yet come. That's speaking, that's speaking implicitly of the sovereignty of God. He did not allow it to happen. However, during the last week of his life, John chapter 12, John chapter 12, John 12, 23, the last week of his life, so three and a half years later, it says, 12, 23, Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Chapter 13, chapter 13 and verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, he prays this prayer before his death. Shortly before his death, John 17, verse 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So it's quite clear that when John says his hour had not yet come, he's talking about the imminent death of Christ and the benefits of those who believe in that imminent death. So he's calling on his mother in a kind way to remember that it's not merely wine I'm going to make, a water into wine, but it is the significance of it that I want you to understand, mother. That's what he means by his comments in verse 4. And his mother knew that something like this was happening because she did not take it as an offense. And she did not take it as a complete rejection of her request. She didn't take it that way because immediately it says, verse 5, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She knows he's going to do it. So just follow his instructions. So Mary likely being an honored guest at this wedding, the people would have known her. So then the servants are told by the mother, listen to what my son Jesus tells you. Whatever he tells you, do it. Even if it sounds and looks ridiculous is the implication. And it seems to be that from verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. The Jewish custom of purification from Mark chapter 7, 1 to 4, Mark 7, 1 to 4, we can see there that the Jews had purification rituals before they ate, before they ate and did certain things. And they would have large water pots. And John the Apostle tells us that there were six of them there and they were able to hold 20 or 30 gallons each. So they were large pots available. So they were empty, and Jesus says in verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots, and they filled them up to the brim. Fill them, and so they did. They listened to what he said. Verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. We see in these verses that Jesus does not actually touch the water pots. Jesus does not actually fill the pots with water. He doesn't do any of that. He has others do it. And these others end up being objective witnesses to the fact that a miracle took place. So that if anyone has a dispute, anyone has a question, they can go to these servants who were in charge of putting the water in the pots and then emptying the pots to give to the people to drink. They were the ones to do so. Jesus keeps his distance from the miracle for the purpose of showing the evidence from eyewitnesses to the other people. Verse 9. Verse 9. And when the head waiter tasted the water, 
which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. The servants knew that they needed to go by the instructions and the directions of the head waiter. So they take this wine, new wine, to the waiter. And the head waiter is the one who is amazed by this. And he doesn't know what happened, but the servants knew what happened. And then he, in amazement, goes to the groom. And verse 10, and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. He is expressing amazement to the groom, the groom who's in charge of supplying the wine. It says, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor or lesser quality. So typically what happens in a festival, in a celebration, is the good wine is served first. People drink as much as they want. They drink freely. And then after they drink freely, the host brings out the lesser quality wine if the people still want to drink. That's the usual sequence in these celebrations. He's expressing what typically happens, what typically happens. And then says, you have kept the good wine until now. So when is the good wine, in terms of the spiritual connotation to this, when is the good wine that we benefit from, when is that going to be served? It's not served now. It's served in the age to come. Isaiah 25 The Lord of hosts has prepared a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine and choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. That's what Isaiah says. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 1 to 7 or 1 to 10, takes place when the celebration occurs. The bride, which is the church, All believers throughout all ages from Genesis till the end, when we are there with Christ upon his return, we will be in his presence and enjoying a lavish banquet. Whether literally or figuratively, that's irrelevant for our point right now. The point is that we are there in his presence with joy, with celebration, because we don't deserve to be invited, but we are there and we are at his table in his presence forevermore. Then it says in verse 11, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did. We've already said that this is his first miracle and the plain, simple, straightforward reading of this verse means that he did not perform miracles before this. We'll say more about this verse um, in a later message, but for now, the importance of this verse, one importance of it importance uh, points is that it is not possible that Jesus performed miracles before this point because there were people and some people even today believe that Jesus throughout his childhood performed miracles of a very curious and bizarre kind. However, if we examine the miracles of the Bible from Matthew to John that Jesus performed, 
These miracles are always for the benefit of the people. They're not for his benefit, and they're not for him to show off any, his power or anything like that. But the miracles that are supposedly, purportedly performed by him in his childhood were of a bizarre and, and uh, ridiculous kind. Not the kind that were for the benefit of people or for the benefit of expressing some spiritual truth. They weren't like that. So this was his first miracle. Okay, now let's, let's go back and understand a few lessons from this. Practical lessons for our day and age. We see here that Jesus, he blessed this wedding or marriage by his presence. Jesus believed in marriage. Jesus believed in marriage and family. He taught this throughout his ministry. He's teaching it by his example here that marriage is good and right in the sight of God. So naturally, what then is marriage? Marriage is between a man and a woman, between one man and one woman. That's what biblical marriage is. It's not between two or more men. It's not between two or more women. It's not with one woman with several men or one man with several women. It's not like that. It's not with a woman and an animal. It's not with a man and an animal. It does not happen that way. In the Bible, marriage is that way. It says in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Made them male and female. And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. This is the way biblical marriage is. Another issue related to marriage has to do with sexual relations or sexual intercourse. This intercourse is only permitted in the Bible in marriage. It's not permitted outside of marriage, but only in marriage. Even in the book of John, we have a note on this. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. The woman of Samaria that Jesus met at the well of Samaria, the woman of Samaria that he met at the well. They are dialoguing, and in John 4, John chapter 4, 16, 4 verse 16, he said to her, Jesus said to the woman, go, call your husband and come. Call your husband and come. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus is bringing to her attention her sin. And what is her sin? The fact that she is fornicating with a man. She told him truly, I don't have a husband. However, she is fornicating with the man, committing sexual immorality with the man because the man is not her husband. Not only that, but presumably she has had problems with men in the past because she had five husbands and that shows her serial uh, sin, her serial sin that she is unable to maintain a proper and steady marriage and relationship with a husband. 
So there Jesus is teaching her that premarital sex is sin. It is sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. How serious is premarital sex? How serious is it? 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality or fornication. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality or flee fornication. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, or be, but because of fornications, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It is quite evident that the apostle says that in marriage, in marriage alone, this is the place where man and woman can be joined in sexual union. Otherwise, it is a sin. It is a sin. And verse 9 explicitly mentions fornicators. Fornicators, those who do so before marriage. And When one does so, that sin or any of the other sins, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. He is considered unrighteous, and he does not possess salvation. Yes, there is hope. One can repent and turn from it, according to verse 11, be washed and sanctified in Christ and the Holy Spirit. However, this is what marriage is, or proper expression of sexual relations. It happens in marriage. And Jesus is endorsing these teachings by his presence. 
Furthermore, another question arises, and that question has to do with the relationship between um, good and bad wine, or what Jesus did in performing this miracle. This is a very, also a very controversial question that normally arises. Is it okay or is it proper for Christians to drink wine? Is it okay for Christians to drink wine, yes or no? This is an issue even in the life of Christ. Remember what Christ was accused of, what Christ was accused of. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Did Christ drink wine? Did Christ drink wine? In Matthew 11, some, some messengers of John the Baptist come and they explain some things to Christ about John and ask some things about John. And Jesus teaches the difference between John and Jesus and how some people find excuses to reject the gospel and it doesn't matter if John preaches the gospel or Jesus preaches the gospel, they will reject it. It doesn't matter how John lives and it doesn't matter how Jesus lives, they will reject it. That's the way people are. The example begins at chapter 11, verse 16. John, or Matthew eleven sixteen. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You see, the unbelievers, they rejected John's message. The problem was not with his message, and the problem was not with his method. John did not come eating and drinking. He didn't eat meat, and he did not drink wine. Yet they still accused him of being demon-possessed. Jesus, on the other hand, did come eating meat. He did come eating meat, and Jesus did come drinking wine. And yet they accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Which shows that Jesus, at the wedding of Cana, he drank the wine at the wedding of Cana. And whatever the meat was there that was served, he ate the meat. He ate the meat and he drank the wine. So Jesus did participate. So if he participated in eating meat and drinking wine, it cannot be sin. Otherwise, Jesus sinned. It cannot be evil. Otherwise, Jesus committed evil. Furthermore, Jesus not only did so, he used it to show a good example. Matthew chapter 26 Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Matthew 26, 26. Matthew 26, 26. It's a good example of two events. Drinking wine is a good example of two events. Matthew 26, 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood 
of the covenant which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see the two events? He is instituting the Lord's Supper at the time of the Last Supper or the last Passover that in which he participated. He is doing it at that time. He is blessing the elements. And then he says in verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. There, he's speaking of the cross, the future cross, the imminent cross on which he will die for our sins. Then in verse 29, he's speaking of the future kingdom, the life to come. Uh, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 1 to 10, or Isaiah chapter 25, 6 to 12. He's speaking of that future kingdom. This is what he was signifying by participating in this wedding and drinking of the wine and eating of the meat. Since he does so, it cannot be evil, it cannot be sin, the drinking of it. Furthermore, we have another example in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, this does not relate to Christ specifically, but it is another positive example on the consumption or drinking of wine. 1 Timothy 5, 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul teaches Timothy, a pastor, he's a pastor, which will be relevant in in a moment. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He had a stomach problem. Timothy did, and Paul's advice to him was don't only drink water. Don't think you're doing something good if you're only drinking water. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So there's a positive example of that. Now, let's look at the danger. Let's look at negative examples or the danger. Romans chapter 13. The danger is... Drunkenness. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Drunkenness is unsuitable for the Christian. If he's putting on Jesus Christ, then he will have nothing to do with drunkenness. Remember, we read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. 
And one of the sins he mentioned, that is the sin of the unrighteous man who will not inherit the kingdom of God, is the sin of drunkenness. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So drunkenness keeps one out of heaven. One more place, 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased, ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The time already passed. Before our conversion, we had plenty of time to practice sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So, this is unsuitable for the Christian. It is impossible and unsuitable for the Christian because if a Christian does so, he is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Then, for pastors, what should pastors do? Should we have a standard, uh, a same standard or a double standard for pastors? Pastors also are to be careful. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. The qualifications of a pastor or elder, leader in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 3. Not addicted to wine. It says, he should not be addicted to wine. Chapter 3, verse 8, for deacons. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine. They should not either. Which means that Timothy was permitted to drink it, but not to be addicted to it. He was permitted to drink it, but not be addicted to it. Titus chapter Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verse 3. Not only the pastors, but it says in Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. They too. So pastors, old women, old men, young men, young women, whoever it is, No one should be addicted to wine. Nobody should be a drunkard because their soul will go to hell if they do so. Then one more qualification we need to make on this matter has to do with Romans chapter 14. Please turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. In this case, there are some believers who are unable because of their condition, their circumstance, their context, their background, 
to eat meat or to drink wine. They are unable to do so. Romans 14, verse 1. So if they are, what should our attitude be toward them? Verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stands he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 13, chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles." The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. The apostle is warning us that though we know, those who are strong in faith, we know we can eat all things, eat meat. We can eat clean meat. We can eat unclean meat. We can eat all things. And that is permitted and acceptable for us now. After the coming of Christ, it is permitted and acceptable for us now. Even the drinking of wine, he mentions, is permitted and acceptable for us. However, there are others who are weak in faith, who are not able to eat the meat or to drink the wine. We who are strong in faith should not condemn them, and they who are weak in faith should not condemn us for eating. When we set up these roadblocks and obstacles with each other, we are not acceptable to God. If God says it's okay to have weak faith, but then not to stay in that weak faith, to grow in faith, but still be gentle and mindful of those who are weak in faith. And those who are weak in faith should not be condemning those who are strong in faith in these matters. Consider the circumstance. Consider who is in your audience, who is in your fellowship, in the way in which you talk about these matters and even act on these matters. I hope that we have learned from this passage about Jesus' endorsement of this wedding and marriage and Jesus' perspective and how he deals with people and circumstances. May we, 
in our current life, seek the wisdom of God for everything. And remember that what we do now is just a foretaste of the life to come. May we look forward to that life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.